0: you're listening to new books in popular culture. This is Erin Lee Mock with you again. And today I've got Matthew Delmont. He's an assistant professor of American studies and the co-coordinator of the Intercollegiate Program of American Studies at Scripps College. His research and teaching focus on 20th century U.S. history, focusing on popular culture and media studies, urban history, education, and comparative ethnic studies. His marvelous new book, The Nicest Kids in Town, is forthcoming from University of California Press in 2012, and I'm thrilled that it brings Matt to new books in popular culture today. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Erin.
0: Matt, you say in your introduction that you expected to contrast Americans Bandstand as integrated with the segregated Philadelphia around it, but then you were surprised to find a more complicated story. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write the nicest kids in town
1: um i think it actually started with my mom in some ways um she grew up watching american band Sand, and so i can remember from when i was very young um her telling me about how much she loved the show how she used to go home from school and watch it every day and how she particularly followed uh, arlene sullivan and kenny rossi um her favorite dancers on the show um so i grew up sort of knowing about american Band Sand as this important um show in the history of, of popular culture um I certainly didn't enter graduate school thinking I was going to work on it. Um, I think it was always kind of lurking in the background in some ways. Um, when I started to sort of think about what I wanted to w- write on for my dissertation, um, I thought more about what spaces could be interesting to look at um, to try to find new stories about civil rights in the North. I knew I wanted to do something about civil rights in the North. But I wasn't sure where, where that would be. Um, I focused on Philadelphia because I knew American Bandstand came from there. And and as you say, I thought initially in the formulation of the project, I'd be able to contrast uh, American Bandstand being what I thought would be an integrated program uh, with what I knew to be the segregation that was going on in the neighborhoods and schools in Philadelphia. Uh, And I think I must have just assumed um, from what Dick has said about the show that American Bandstand was racially integrated. Um, So that's what I went into the project thinking. Um, What really became fascinating for me as I got more Deep into the research, um, was how that just wasn't the case. Um, how Descartes has had these popular histories of American bandstand over really the last 30, 40 years, um, that have put forth a, a history of American bandstand with regards to segregation that, um, ends up just not be true. Um, and the real struggle of the project was trying to piece together Um, how that memory came to be um, and what was actually going on um, at the neighborhood and the city level in Philadelphia that that led the producers, uh, including Dick Clark, to make it a segregated program um, So trying to contrast uh, the reality of what happened in the 1950s and 60s in Philadelphia with what uh, Dick Clark's popular memory of the show was.
0: Well, speaking of piecing things together, there are an array of wonderful things to say about your book, but one is that it's a model for rigorous, exciting American studies methodology, and so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your process in researching and writing it.
1: Yeah, it's really um, uh, a fun project to work on. I think it's one of the great things about doing uh, history of popular culture is that it's always fun stuff to work on, even when the, the subjects are very um, are very serious and meaningful. Um, I used a, a range of sources, um, including more traditional sources so I did a lot of stuff at the archives in Philadelphia, uh, particularly the Temple uh, Urban Archives, Philadelphia City Archives, which are more kind of traditional archival sources. Um, I was able to find a lot of great stuff on the the main civil rights organizations in a city and also the um, the groups that were meant to, the city organizations that were meant to, um, to seek out and, and find instances of discrimination in Philadelphia. Um, at the Philadelphia City Archives, I was able to, in sort of a, very needle in the haystack sort of way, find a couple of records from the Commission on Human Relations, um, who brought up instances in which um, either American Bandstands producers had asked them to look into some of the teenager fights that were going on outside of the studio, or later when teenagers, black teenagers, had asked the, this Commission on Human Relations to investigate instances of discrimination uh, with American Bandstand. Those were the earliest records um, I found early records really, really that anyone's that we've been able to produce that uh, testify to the, these issues of segregation, uh, in Philadelphia. And I really ran across them, um, by luck. Um, they were, um, two pages of what were thousands of pages in the, the records of the community, uh, Commission on Human Relations. Um, so traditional archival sources have been, were certainly a really important part of what I did for the book. Um, what was also fun about this popular culture stuff is that, um, Dick Clark, uh, production holds most of the or actually all of the um Available video material for the show, um, it hasn't been available to scholars, so I had to find other ways to get a sense of what was going on with the program. Uh, and it turns out eBay is a great source for um, for historians of popular culture. I was able yeah. to find uh, I was able to find really great uh, yearbooks um, that, that were sent out uh, to publicize the show to fans and to advertisers uh, that were a great record of the of the show in real time. So from '57 and from '59, um, I was able to buy them from people who I assume it was in their attics. Um, uh, a source that I never would have thought to, to look for initially, but as I had to, to look around to find um, find sources to tell the story about American Bandstand, a place like eBay became really important. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say here would be um, the importance of oral history. So to try to kind of triangulate among these different sources, um, I was able to interview a number of people who um, either dance on American Bandstand and can recall the racial dynamics of the show or who protested American Bandstand, who they they weren't able to get into American Bandstand. They would ask them about their memories of the show. Uh, It was really through this kind of triangulation of these more traditional and more untraditional sources um, that helped to produce something new on American Bandstand. So
0: the history of school segregation connect to the history of American bandstand um, in Philadelphia in a really interesting way um, and I'm hoping that you can tell me how from that research you were able to construct this narrative of that confluence
1: yeah this is one of the things um, I, I tell my students that I, I wrote a book that I wanted to be able to teach to my students um, and by that I mean I wanted them to see how these different um, these different important themes of post-war history really come together so often um, In my classes, I'll teach a week on uh, education and school segregation, then a week on the rise of television, then a week on the rise of the suburbs. Um, And there's great scholarship on all of those, but what I wanted was to try to find a a site where I could bring these different themes together and really explain to them that for, for teenagers in the 1950s and 60s, these things were all happening at the same time, that uh, either families were moving out of the city into the suburban areas, or they were unable to move into the suburban areas. That they're getting television for the first time, that they were listening to rock and roll for the first time, that they were being um, appealed to as part of a national youth culture for the first time. That these things were all sort of part of the daily lived experience for teenagers, um, that need to really be be viewed in that way. Um, in the case of Philadelphia, the school segregation component goes with the American bandstand component, in that both of them, as is true. Throughout much of the um, the North and the, the Midwest and the West, with regards to civil rights, um, both the schools and uh, and the television producers use a r- range of really underhanded tactics to maintain racial discrimination and racial segregation, uh, without ever having formal policies of segregation. So, counter to what you'd see in the South with uh, de jure segregation or segregation by law, um, these producers and um, and the school uh, school administrators had a uh, a range of excuses why it just so happened that the schools became more racially segregated or it just so happened that the studio audience was always white on American bandstand. In the case of the schools, they blamed housing patterns and said that these were natural housing patterns. Um, what they didn't fail to account for was the fact that these housing patterns were deeply discriminatory based on where the federal government gave money, um, but also based on where the schools chose to site their, their, their new school construction projects. So they put schools in places that were going to be Uh, almost by definition, black schools or white schools. In the case of the television producers, they said it's a a first-come, first-served show. All all teenagers are welcome. But they always had some way of keeping black teenagers off the show. Um, Either they required people to write in in advance, and they would screen to see who had Polish or Italian or ethnic, white-sounding last names, Um, or they would say you don't have the right clothes on, or there's always some sort of way to keep the teens off the show. Um, What I think really draws these two things together, though, is that... uh, In both the case of television and in schools, they presented Philadelphia as being a progressive and nominally liberal place. It was not the South. It was a a forward-thinking place with regards to race. Um, And it turns out that that's just not true in either instance. And the way in which it's not true, these underhanded techniques, I think, are things that uh, at least my students aren't as familiar with, and I really wanted to bring that to light.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned um, that Italian Americans and Polish Americans um, were welcome on American Bandstand because one really fascinating moment to me in the text is when you talk about Italian American identity on the show and the proximity of the Catholic school to the studio and how that actually uh, how that actually functioned to integrate Italian Americans at the same time that the show was alienating some uh, black teens.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the. Um, so the message of the, the book is certainly not that American Bandstand was a was a bad program. Um, it was an extremely meaningful program for a lot of teens. Um, my mom, being one of them, she grew up as an Italian American teen in, in Minneapolis, and I think one of the things that she liked about the show is that she could see other teenagers who looked like her on on television. Um, and this is what I found in the interviews I did with the the teens who who danced on the program or who watched the program in these Italian American neighborhoods. Um, it was. Deeply part of their their teen peer culture, um, so instances in which people would be watching the show and they would get their name announced um, for winning a contest and they would hear screams on their block because everyone else on their block was watching the show at the same time. Um, what I think is great about these um, these memories that the teens have is that it really kind of blurs the boundary between sort of television representation and um, everyday local youth cultures. That for these teens, they went to high school with the people who became these kind of first reality TV bars on American Bandstand, they were just part of their part of their neighborhood. Um, they saw each other at the same dances. They learned to dance at the same dances. Um, and for Italian-American teens, certainly it, uh, in an era in which they were definitely not the not the norm, they were not the, the blonde hair, blue-eye norm of, of what teenagers look like, uh, American Bandstand really moved that group to the forefront.
0: Adults also play a strange role in your text because while the teens are clamoring to be on the show or protesting the show, um, there are a number of adults that uh, come to the fore as characters. And then there's also the idea of adults. There's one magazine article that you mentioned which suggests that Black parents were essentially begging the show's host to allow their children on the set. I think um, there's a notion that these black teens wanted to be there and that their parents wanted them to be involved in this youth culture as well. Do you have anything to say about that?
1: Yeah, I think, um, one of the things that came up for me in my research is how many, um, how the adults had such competing interest, uh, for what teenage life should be like in this time. So I think it's a familiar story that, um, that national youth culture emerges in the 1950s. And I think it's fairly well known with regards to how that looks for advertisers and how advertisers wanted to really reach this youth market. Um, I think what's maybe less well known is at local level, how many people had very strongly held ideas about, uh, what teenage life should look like, uh, from multiple different perspectives. Um, what you referenced with the, the black parents, um, I was able to find some of this information from the Philadelphia Tribune, which is the leading, uh, which was the leading black newspaper in Philadelphia. And this is a case in which the black parents were writing in to complain that their teenagers were being blocked from being on American bandstand. Um, and I wouldn't say it quite rises to the level of a, a civil rights complaint for the parents, but it was a, a basic issue of fairness, I think, that they were watching the same TV shows every day. They saw these white teens representing what Philadelphia teens or what American teens look like. And they were mad that their teenagers weren't there. Um, I think it complicates things in a, a little because we often think of the 1950s with parents having very sort of stern or negative ideas about rock and roll or R&B. Um, and that doesn't really hold up from the evidence that I found, um, in Philadelphia that certainly some parents and adults were skeptical of rock and roll and, and R&B and some of the, the sexual, um, sexual ideals that went along with that. But a lot of parents were interested in their, their teens, um, Participating in these singing groups, participating in the, the, the street corner duo wop groups um, as a way to sort of be active in something that was a, seen as a, a positive form of entertainment. And they wanted to see their kids on TV. Um, I think it, it's almost as basic as that. Um, it really boiled down to a fairness issue, I think, for some of the parents. Uh, for some of the um, the, the white adults who, are, uh, who show up in the book, there's also a range of different perspectives there. Um, in some cases, um, for example, Maurice Fagan with the Fellowship Commission, they had really strong ideas about how uh, teenagers were the next generation um, of the fight against prejudice. Um, so this is drawing on uh, uh, Myrtle's work in American Dilemma. So, very much part of the, the idea of social science at the time that, that youth and teenagers were where you were going to fight racism and prejudice. So in Maurice Fagan's case, he wanted to have a, a televised discussion show that would mold and and shape uh, teenage ideals in different ways. Um, So that was one kind of perspective on what adults wanted for teenagers. Maybe a final one would be someone like Dick Clark. Um, He rises to prominence in 1950s Philadelphia um, just as a local personality first because he's very savvy with regards to trying to provide teenagers with exactly what they seem to want. Um, So it's not that he was pro-segregation with regards to teenagers. I would say he was pro-selling products to teenagers Um, And what that meant in the the racial context of Philadelphia was that the show had to be segregated.
0: Well, your answer to that question brought up about half of the things that I'm dying to talk to you about. So I'm just going to follow up on them one by one. Um, One is the character of Maurice Fagan, um, as well as Floyd Logan, Cecil Moore, Georgie Woods, those, those are the people that sort, of, that sort of emerge along with Dick Clark. I think I expected him to be in a way the protagonist of the book. And there certainly wasn't one, but Maurice Fagan is, is a fascinating figure and I'd like to hear more about They Shall Be Heard and about his organization and the work that he did in Philly.
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, Maurice Fagan hosted a show called They Shall Be Heard, um, which was a locally televised uh, teen discussion show uh, broadcast in 1952 and 53, uh, just to the Philadelphia area. And this is one of the great things about doing research: is that I had never heard of the show uh, when I started my research. Uh, similar with the the Mitch Thomas show, I knew I wanted to do research on teens and television, in Philadelphia. Um, but it wasn't until I got in the archives and started digging around that I found some of these other examples. So with um, Fagan and They Shall Be Heard, he had um, really he was really optimistic about the use of television to shape what he called democratic ideals with regards to to race and prejudice. Um, He himself was a leading Jewish civil rights activist, um, part of a a generation of Jewish civil rights activists who come to prominence after World War II, um, particularly um, obviously concerned with the rise of anti-Semitism during World War II, but also looking to make alliances with uh, African-American civil rights uh, leaders. He, uh, I think was really forward thinking with regards to how he could use uh, television to sort of stimulate debate part of it was just a pragmatic issue for him he realized that his group the fellowship commission which is a, a civil rights coalition they didn't have the resources to be able to fight this prejudice battle in every neighborhood in philadelphia they just couldn't do it so he thought that he could use television uh, as a way to press to sparks in these debates and really try to force Philadelphians to confront issues with regards to civil rights particularly with regards to teenagers and civil rights that were going on uh, at that time um What's interesting for me about They Shall Be Heard is that it starts at the exact same time that the local version of American Bandstand starts, and they end up having very different trajectories. Uh, Bandstand obviously goes on to become one of the most well-known television shows ever. Um, they Shall Be Heard is only on the air for a year, um, and it has a lot to do with the, the commercial politics of television at the time. So they shall be heard only able to get on the air because of a a cooperation agreement between the television stations and the school board who want to have some sort of civic interest or community interest programming. Um, Once television time, uh, advertising time becomes more valuable by 53 and by the mid fifties, those sorts of uh, local civic programs fall out. So programs that can support themselves through advertiser support, such as American bandstand, or in that case uh, the local version of bandstand by selling sponsorship to, to soft drinks to bubble gum, to everything else, they were able to stand the, the air and really thrive. Uh, whereas something that was directly trying to combat uh, racial prejudice, like "They Shall Be Heard," uh, has no place in local television by the, by the mid '50s. Uh, but for me, uh, Fagan was a really fascinating character for what he was—the um, forward, forward-looking ways when he was trying to use television at this time.
0: Could you talk to us about Floyd Logan then?
1: Yeah, um Floyd Vogan, so um uh, in the book, uh Maurice Sagan and Floyd Vogan are really the the two key players in trying to advance um the school segregation issue, get the school board to address school segregation in the nineteen fifties. It becomes more of a, a public fight in the nineteen sixties, um, but during the nineteen fifties Maurice Sagan and Floyd Wogan are really the two key people. Um what's fascinating about Floyd Vogan, and again, I think from a historian's perspective, what's interesting for me about him is that he collected all the records that even makes my history of this time period with regards to school as possible. He, um, as the, the sort of tribune, attributed uh, them, um, in the early 1960s, he had very little money. Um, he was not a, a famous man in any regard, but he was, um, he was extremely thorough. He wrote consistently and persistently to the school board uh, and kept copies of all of these records, both his letters to them and then their letters back to him, and compiled all the records that would um, he was hoping would allow him to prove that the school board was discriminating against black teens. And he kept forcing the school board to, um, to address this issue. Uh, what ended up happening was that the school board continued to... Um, continued to push back against his demands. They'd always defer it for a later date. They would say, well, we're going to form a committee. Um, the data you have is incomplete. Let's form another committee to find more data. Um, so he ended up not being successful in trying to um, prosecute these issues of, of school segregation, but he, what he did do was make it um, extremely clear that these issues were going on in the 1950s. So um, as scholars have looked back at the 1960s and sort of, with renewed attention to civil rights in the North or rediscovered civil rights in the North, I'd say in the last or five or 10 years. It's really the case that Floyd Hogan was waging the same battle in the 1950s. He was trying to make school segregation a public issue. He was trying to get people to, to make note of it. Um, one of the particularly tricky parts of what goes on is that the school board ends up co-opting the language of the Fellowship Commission, uh, which is more Maurice Fagan's group, to have a, a, uh, sort of statements where they say that they're in favor of intercultural education, so that a uh, early version of kind of multiculturalism or diversity education school board says they're in favor of this, uh, and that makes them a leading um, a leading site of uh, with regards to school integration in the north so they they co opt this language of of uh, intercultural education without ever making any tangible changes to their policies about where they're putting schools or about where they're assigning teachers or students. So they're able to use the language of intercultural education to to thwart the demands of, of Floyd Logan and other black community activists.
0: That's fascinating. And it seems like a lot of the language that they were all trafficking in was, as you noted before, uh, part of this kind of social science discourse that was available at the time. And that uh, that I believe it's it's Raymond Logan who um, who is sort of offering a counterpoint that's uh, a little bit less palatable. Could you tell us more about how Myrtle and Raymond Logan and others were writing about these issues at the time in the social science community?
1: Yeah, and what it boils down to is really a a debate over um, changing the hearts and minds of people with regards to race or really addressing racism as a structural issue. Um, That is true at a national level and it it becomes true at a a local level here in Philadelphia. So uh, Maurice Fagan was very much influenced by Myrtle and the American Dilemma, which is more of an effort to fight prejudice as a a hearts and minds issue. So if you can change the way people think about race, that will make society less racist. Uh, There's a lot to be said about that approach. I think particularly in this time period, so in the 40s and 50s, there was certainly a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of anti-black racism. Um, I think it made a lot of sense for um, someone like Maurice Fagan to to take that anti-prejudice approach and try to use television in that way. what ends up happening though, one of the limitations of that approach is that it's easy to say, yeah, we, we did that. We are, we are anti-prejudice and this is what the school board does. They say that we have the, um, one of these accusations is we're the, the leading intercultural, um, school system in the nation. Um, so they can co-opt this language, this language of anti-prejudice without ever making any, any tangible progress with regards to the structural dimensions of racism. Um, and that's where someone like, um, Rayford Logan comes in. Um, Talking about what do his so his uh, edited collection, what the Negro wants, and getting a number of different African American intellectuals and scholars to to write forcefully about the demands that um, the Black activists had in this time period um, beyond just issues of prejudice um, for real uh, real changes with regards to employment policies, housing policies, education policies that would have uh, real structural changes and structural improvements in the living conditions of African Americans. And that's really what the, these early civil rights activists in Philadelphia run up against. Um, they're able to make progress in, I think, very savvy ways with regards to anti-prejudice um, appeals, but they really run up against the uh, not having a way to combat the, the structural nature of racism.
0: The power of certain structures is in flux within the radio and music industries at the time and the television industry at the time and i think that the interaction of those structures with these structures supporting racism is really interesting um could you tell us about the shifts of power within the music industry and maybe a little bit about payola since we tend to associate (laughs) dick clark with with that scandal for better or for worse
1: sure um so it's a it's a really interesting moment. I think American Bandstand sits at a really interesting intersection of the of television, uh, radio, and music. So one of the ways in which um, American Bandstand becomes so important is it becomes one of the only national venues through which to, to market records. So you have a tremendous amount of, um, of uh, consolidation going on in the industries at this point in time. And what American Bandstand is able to do is it provides um, – record labels with a single spot through which they can um, market their, their new songs. So there are a number of different instances of groups, um, even when the band was a local show, uh, going great distances to get to, um, to get to Philadelphia to be able to perform on Philadelphia and then seeing an immediate uh, bump in their sales, uh, sales of the records right after that. Uh, it really becomes one of the only national venues. Dick Clark becomes one of the, the only national, truly national uh, DJs at the time, even though he, he himself doesn't have a great Knowledge of the music. Um, it also, in some ways, forces a um, a homogeny onto the music that I think um, people lament that because American Bandstand does have this sort of national marketing focus, it isn't able to um, to broadcast a lot of the the different local types of music that come to prominence at different uh, different radio stations across the country. So stuff so that's on the air in Memphis or in Cleveland or Dallas or Los Angeles um, ends up being more. Uh, there's more variety there. It's more diverse than what shows up on American Bandstand. One of the connections to uh, Paola, then, the big scandal um, that nearly sunk Dick Hart's career, was that and this becomes a common practice both with radio and with um, and with television, is that record companies would um, would offer payments um, over the table or under the table to disc jockeys in order to get their records more favorable play. Um, it took a whole variety of different forms and I, I didn't try to trace down all of the different uh, ways in which pale um, uh, took place in this time period. But my real interest was in uh, how Dick Clark sort of survived that pale moment. Um, and what ended up happening was that he, part because of the strength of American bandstand, he was able to negotiate a, a more lenient, or at least a more flexible, um, uh, statement about pale about what he had, his relationship to these, um, his record interest was with uh, ABC, was his his employer, than any other DJ uh, was able to do. Um, so, whereas Alan Freed, for example, another early um, and influential rock and roll DJ, um, was was brought down by Paola, uh the Payola scandal. Dick Clark was able to find a, a very sort of narrowly worded and narrowly tailored um, definition of what Paola was that put him on the outside of it, put him on the legal side of it, um, and allowed him to survive um, survive that scandal.
0: The homogenization that you mentioned, the fact that there was a kind of blanding to the music because of this sort of nationalizing of youth culture is interestingly undercut by the, by the teens in that when the crew cuts version of Shaboom was on the show, they complained that it wasn't the original, the authentic version and if i understand that's why the chords ended up being the first black group on american bandstand right so yeah, do you yeah. do you hold do you hold up the teens as as um the people who were making the music itself more progressive on the show
1: i think absolutely i mean I think from the producers perspective american bandstand they would play whatever um was going to be least controversial and most profitable um by the mid and late 1950s, it just isn't sustainable in many cases um, from the teens' perspective to um, to listen to the this more whitewashed or watered-down um, white cover version of, of black R&B. There's still some of that that, that shows up um, throughout the 50s, but the, the teens as early as um, the early 1950s start to demand the the quote-unquote more authentic version of the song, the original versions of the song, which are most often by these um, black R&B groups. So it's really... The case where the producers were trying to cater to the teens' interests and the teens' demands—that it's more of the um, the black R&B and black ar- uh, rock and roll onto shows like American Bandstand.
0: And the catering to teens happens in the advertising as well. You mentioned Seven Up earlier, but one of the things that I found so fascinating is that you show the idea of integration or idea of segregation playing out in advertising in several ways. So, for example. You have a photograph um, taken by the proprietors of Joe's Stack Bar in Philadelphia, which uh, depicted scenes of integrated youth. But it was the concerns about advertisers on American Bandstand that made them segregate to begin with. And then later, Georgie Woods, who I'd like you to talk about, suggests that blacks are as capable as whites of promoting products. So it seems like there's a tremendous amount of ambivalence about what effective advertising is in this era when it comes to race.
1: I think that's a good way to put it, the idea of ambivalence with regards to what effective advertising is. Um, Maybe starting from the local perspective, you mentioned uh, the Joe's snack bars. This was one of the great finds. uh, Another one of the great and sort of fun sources able to use for this product were high school yearbooks. Um, In this case, uh, West Philadelphia, and I have to uh, thank the, the, actually the custodian at Westwood High School for not throwing out the yearbooks. When I went to the high school to ask about the yearbooks, they weren't in the library. They were down in the custodial office in the basement. And someone 10 years ago had suggested they throw them out, but she had said no and, and they kept them there on a shelf. So we're wow. not sure. I, I, I wouldn't have had access to some of this great material. Um, but Joe Smackbar were a couple of uh, older... Um, white uh, business owners who had a a snack bar right across the street from West Philadelphia High School, which was a racially integrated high school, which was just a couple blocks from American Bandstand. And every year uh, throughout the 1950s, they placed an ad in the high school yearbook, which a lot of businesses did. But what was unique about theirs is it always featured an interracial group of teens. Um, I think it made sense for them because it was in a very local context. This was who frequented their snack bar, and they wanted to recognize that their business depended on... Uh, integrated teenagers. Um, in the case of Georgie Woods, who is a, a prominent um, African-American DJ and, and civil rights activist in Philadelphia, he was constantly trying to lobby that if if television and radio are just about selling products, um, then a black DJ and an integrated audience can do just as good a, a job of that, perhaps a better job of that, than a white DJ and or a white um, host of a show and a, a white segregated audience. That it doesn't have to be strictly about race. The problem for Georgie Woodson, the reason American Bandstand um, remained, one of the reasons American Bandstand remained segregated, that there were deeply, deeply entrenched ideas about the dangers of integration for commercial products that sponsors, particularly in the 1950s, particularly with regards to rock and roll, were aware of anything that had anything to do with uh, controversial ideas, anything that had anything to do with ideas about interracial sex. And for them, that's what, the, the prospect of having an integrated teenage studio audience meant that the teens would dance together and then it would somehow read as uh, being a sexual activity. Um, what this meant for, for Clark and the, the, the advertisers they sought out from Bandsand it was kind of a, a circular relationship. Bandsand became what Bandstand was. It became famous because it was able to attract this whole host of sponsors who were really eager to have their, their products promoted uh, to teenagers, and it's fascinating when you look at some of the available clips that are out there for American bands and how deeply ingrained these products were into the episodes themselves. So Seven Up, for example, there's a one episode where they spend almost ten minutes just having the teenagers drink the Seven Up in the studio. Um, sort of an extreme amount of connection for uh, advertisers to have with their with their consumers. Um, it's circular though, because what the advertisers demanded, or at least what the producers thought the advertisers demanded, was that the show would never uh, broach controversial subjects like integration. Um, so it became just much safer for Clark and the pro- producers in seeking out advertisers to be able to promise them that it was going to be a very clean-cut host, and Clark a very clean-cut audience, by which they meant uh, a white, um, predominantly recent Family appearing middle-class audience uh, that would not have uh, any hint of integration or any hint of uh, racial strife.
0: And also important was this idea of um, counter-programming, which you talk about being in this post-Sylvester Reaver spectacular moment in TV and that that opened a space for something like American Bandstand to reach out to the people who weren't watching.
1: Exactly, exactly. So it's a very much a demographic story. Um, ABC um, is not one of the major networks at the time, so they're trying desperately to compete with NBC and CBS. And what they identify on, what they hone they in on, is different slices of market demographics that are not currently being served. Um, and one of the main ones they choose are uh, youth and teenagers. So, first with um, Walt Disney and the Disneyland program, but then most emphatically with American Bandstand. Um, And for them, it really is a a demographic appeal. They want to be the place that teenagers are going to go to watch TV, but then also to buy products. And then if they're buying those products, then they're able to have higher uh, advertiser rates. Um, It's a very very savvy marketing appeal at the time. But what it ends up doing is really shaping ideas about what youth culture looks like in this time period. You are positing
0: um, a a youth culture that's becoming nationalized as opposed to a regional youth culture that in some ways pre existed, if I understand correctly. So um, could you tell us about the other components of this national youth culture for listeners who may not be as aware of that particular moment?
1: Sure. Um, so scholars, um, in particular of Kelly Shrum's work have talked about the emergence of youth culture before world war II, um, by, by this, they mean the way in which teenagers are being addressed as teenagers and coming to understand themselves as teenagers or as part of a, a peer network of teenagers um, who are being asked to, to consume the same products, to watch the same films, listen to the same music, wear the same socks, wear the same shoes, uh, dress in the same ways, do the same dances, all this sort of the simultaneity of, of participation and consumption events um, is one of the hallmarks of scholars who looked at, at youth culture. Um, what I think is interesting about American Bandstander and what it's doing um, with regards to, to creating this this youth culture is that it puts a much more visual image on it and a uh, much more um, repeated image on it. So it's on every day of the week from 57 to 63 um, for an hour and a half, two hours every day. Um, and it gives a very clear sort of visual image of what teenagers look like. And Dick Hart during the show made very explicit appeals to the existence of this youth culture by pointing to the different affiliates in different parts of the country who were tuning in. Um, So calling out affiliates in Cleveland or in Detroit or in Green Bay or in Dallas or New Orleans as a way to really emphasize to teenagers watching at home that while you're watching this in Los Angeles, you know, other teenagers adjusting for, or the, um, the Times of Differences are watching it on the East Coast. They're watching it in Florida. They're watching it in the Midwest. Um, so what you're doing is you're really participating in this youth culture at the same time. Um, now, certainly American Bandstand isn't the only part of that youth culture. There's a ton of films directed at teenagers in this, this time period. Certainly, there's a lot to say about music and about radio. Um, but what I think about is important about American Bandstand is it's the most visual and repeated national appeal to youth culture in a time period um, that really – forces teenagers to to think of themselves in these national terms.
0: And is highly dependent on this notion of liveness in television at the time, which I thought was a really fascinating thing that you brought into the fold. That's been written a lot about by TV scholars, but the idea that youth culture could be dependent on finding a way for everyone to feel alive and together in their living rooms was fascinating. Is there anything that you want to add about that?
1: Um, no, I think just the how new it was at the time period. Um, so I'm definitely influenced by someone like Benedict Anderson here and his idea of imagined communities. And for him, one of the Paramount examples is the newspaper and the, the simultaneity of being you know, able to consume the newspaper at the same time. And I think that's certainly true with something like American Bandstand, that for it being a live television show, as everything was at the time, uh, but emphasizing the liveness to such a great extent, talking Dick Clark's direct appeals to the audience that they should be opening a 7-Up at the same time, that they can dance along to the same dance, they can uh, buy the same product, they can uh, be wearing the same American bandstand shoes, um, do everything kind of at the exact same time as this live program is happening. Uh, I think that's really um, it's really new in this era. And the other thing I think that differentiates bandstand from something like the um, newspaper, for example, and Anderson's work is, again, the visual component of it. So it's not just a matter of thinking that you're doing it at the same time, or being aware that it's probably likely you're doing it at the same time, you actually have visual evidence that you are in fact dancing along at the same time, the same music as at least some set of teens who exist um, in this kind of strange space between actual Philadelphia and uh, national representations of youth culture being broadcast from Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, that's, that's such a great point. And I want to, pick up on what you mentioned about dancing at the same time as the teams are dancing on American Bandstand, because your discussion of the stroll and the evolution of dance steps on the show is something I think our listeners would love to hear more about.
1: Yeah. So one of the um, the great points of controversy with the Bandstand was that they were constantly drawing dances from the local uh, community in Philadelphia. These were most often either black or integrated dances that were going on all across Philadelphia, so at churches, at roller rinks, at record hops, at some of the concerts hosted by DJs like, like Georgie Woods. Uh, but in the case of The Stroll, it was um, teens on bandstand had picked up a dance that they saw teens on a show called The Mitch Thomas Show do. Uh, the Mitch Thomas Show was called in Philadelphia, colloquially called The Black Bandstand. Uh, it broadcast from Wilmington, Delaware, hosted by Mitch Thomas, who was an African-American DJ. It was very similar in structure to um, to American Bandstand, that it had a host, uh, Mitch Thomas, who played records, featured uh, different musical guests, folks like Ray Charles, Little Richard, a lot of the top R&B artists of the day. They would perform, and then teenagers would would dance to these uh, records and performances. What was different from Bandstand was that the Mitch Thomas show was an African-American show was all African-American teenagers. And Mitch Thomas is one of the first African-Americans to host their own television program. So this is a, a dance show that you could say resembles Soul Train, but it's 15 years before Soul Train when it debuts. Uh, Mitch Thomas was often the place where the these dances that were percolating at the local level in Philadelphia first showed up on television, um, a dance called the stroll, which, uh, wasn't invented on the Mitch Thomas show. It's a, uh, actually draws from an old, uh, dance called the Virginia reel. Um, so an old kind of traditional American dance where teenagers would line up on opposite sides, um, uh, young men on one side, young women on the other, and then take turns with their partner dancing down the center of the line, um, doing their sort of best and, um, most flamboyant dance steps. It uh, became an extremely popular dance in the 1950s. Um, first, uh, um, along with sung by uh, Chuck Willis, called "C.C. Rider," which is actually a, uh, a, itself an old blues song by, by Ma Rainey. It became so popular that they started um, different groups started making uh, records that went directly along with uh, with the dance. The stroll. So, a group called the Diamonds recorded a record that was just called "The Stroll." That was explicitly meant to go along with this dance. The controversy emerged though that American Bandstand, um, the teens on that on Bandstand, started doing the stroll. And when Dick Clark uh, announced uh, the dance, he talked about how the teens had sort of just discovered it. And This was actually something that came up in the promotional material for Bandstand as well. They talked about how a new dance was discovered every day and where these dances come from. The material They said so they just they just happen to develop. They just show up on American Bandstand. This really frustrated a lot of the teenagers who were on the Mitch Thomas show, and they um, they asked Mitch Thomas to um, to call Dick Clark. And at least in this instance, uh, Dick Clark was very gracious. And uh, the next week on Bandstand, he uh, he announced that the Mitch Thomas show was the originator spot of of the stroll. Um, what was interesting is that these shows were in very different. Uh, commercial relationship so the mitch thomas show was a locally broadcast show um, whereas bandstand was a nationally broadcast show so the the creative energies of these black teams that were were first being debuted on um, the mitch thomas show made it national through american bandstand but they often almost always never received credit for their for their performances Um, what was interesting in terms of trying to track down this story is that one of the premier dancers on uh, the Mitch Thomas Show was a guy named Otis Gibbons. I was actually able to find him uh, through a few Google searches because he still teaches uh, dance classes in Philadelphia. So I was able to reach out to him and uh, do an oral history interview with him. Um, but only because I was able to find him, luckily, because he still teaches these dance classes, but he was able to offer memories about how the Mitch Thomas Show gave him some of the fame locally that uh, bandstand teens got from bandstand. Uh, but he remembered how he um, he was one of the first teens to to bring this stroll dance to a national, or to at least a local audience, then eventually to a national audience through bandstand.
0: I love that you tracked him down. That's terrific. Um, You mentioned that Dick Clark, in this instance, was remarkably gracious, um, or perhaps uncharacteristically gracious. the, The character of Dick Clark in your book is troubling and fascinating and interesting, and I think very much counter to our image of Dick Clark. Um, just, just tell me what you found out about him. How you see him now, and how you try to construct him as a character in the book.
1: Yeah, it was a, a really difficult, um, a difficult character to try to get a, a handle on. Um, I think what I what I would say first and foremost is he's a tremendous, tremendously savvy business person. Um, I don't think anyone would disagree with that the The reason everyone knows Dick Clark's name is that he, from a very early age, uh, er, a very early point in his career, was able to identify uh, what sold and to provide audiences with more of that. Um, it started with band fan but then expanded uh, much more <clears throat> broadly than that. the The complicated part for me with Dick Clark is that he, over the course of the period I've looked at, over from the start of the show through the present, really, has offered up a series of memories about how he integrated American bandstand that. Just run counter to all the other evidence I was able to provide. So the struggle for me then was to try to understand how and why he developed these memories at different points in time. Um, and they, what I've been able to fix on is that he never, he had never talked about integrating American Bandstand until the 1970s, uh, when Soul Train becomes a competitor to American Bandstand. So from '57 when he takes over the show through the early 1970s, um, when he had supposedly integrated Bandstand in those early years, in 57, 58, he never makes mention of it um, in the in the, um, the publicity material he puts out about American Bandstand. So there's no mention of it early on. He doesn't mention it until uh, Soul Train becomes a competitor to American Bandstand. And what I think is going on, and he doesn't say this explicitly, but what I what I think, what I argue is going on, is that he was trying to sort of shore, shore up the, the bona fides of American Bandstand with Black performers and with Black audiences. So as American Bandstand was losing more black viewers and black performers to Soul Train. He wanted to make it clear that American Bandstand had really been supportive of black artists from very early on. Uh, in some ways, that is a supportable case if you focus just on the artists themselves. Um, American Bandstand did feature a number of African-American artists um, who wouldn't otherwise have gotten on television at the time and were able to sell records uh, through Bandstand. It did have a very uh, homogenous um, white teen idol appeal in 58 and 59, but still there were a number of black artists who made a fair amount of money through performances on American bandstand. <clears throat> so I think had Clark focused just on black performers, he would have been on firm ground. But from that period in the 1970s, when he first offers up this memory of integrating American bandstand, he becomes progressively more bold in his telling of it. Um, so it, it morphs into a statement um, that I paraphrase is something like, you know, I'm not a civil rights activist for having done this. That was just the right thing to do. When I took over the show in 57, we knew the segregation had to end. Um, that's a complicated statement because it's just not true given the other historical materials able to pull together. Um, what might be true is that on very rare occasions, African American teens were able to enter the studio, and he might be arguing that those rare, rare instances constitute integration. Um, but what his Memory elides is that there was continual discrimination against black teams while the show was in Philadelphia, and we have evidence of that from uh, sort of Philadelphia Tribune, which is the black newspaper of the era, from uh, contemporary observers who reported to the Philadelphia Tribune, uh, from oral histories of uh, people I've talked to who either danced on the show or were turned away from the show, um, and from all the visual material that's available from the era. So from all of the different collector Albums that have been out, all the different photos that circulate about the show, there are never any black canes in the studio. Um, so, what's complicated about trying to reconcile what Dick Clark says with the historical record is getting a sense of why he might have offered up these different memories at different points in time. So, I think for him, it was really about trying to establish a legacy of American bandstand. Um, and I think he, for whatever reason, um, and I, I didn't actually interview him for the project, so I don't know his motivations for why he offered up a memory that overstated. Um, overstated the role of American Bandstand. But for whatever reason, he ended up putting forth a, a case about the the integration of American Bandstand that, um, that far overstates what actually happened.
0: Well, and for him, it's clearly related to what you call the vexed relationship between history and memory, which is something that all readers of your book are engaged in because most people who are reading the book are probably reading it expecting an american bandstand more similar to what they think their memory is and as you also say awareness can obscure more than it reveals so one of the incredible things that you then do in your book is take a turn to post 9/11 nostalgia programming that that mentions or portrays american bandstand how do you see this memory fitting into the post-9-11 period?
1: Yeah, so the last chapter of the book looked at uh, American Dreams, which is a television show that was on NBC uh, from 2002-2005. Um, that was uh, focused in Philadelphia and actually set uh, on and around American bands and for which Dick Clark was one of the executive producers. Um, and then Hairspray Um I focus on the the most recent film version, the 2007 film version, but of course it starts with John Waters' uh, famous film and then um, showed up as as a Broadway play uh, in the early early part of the 2000s. What is so interesting for me about both these programs um, is the way in which they both invoke all of the issues I think are so important uh, in the earlier chapters. So issues of youth culture, uh, issues of race, issues of television, issues of of dance, issues of these 13 televised dance programs in very sort of specific urban spaces. Um, And I think there's actually a lot to like about both programs. What I think is fascinating um, about both of them is the context in which they they emerge. So in the case of American Dreams, NBC um, had already been considering the project, but when it comes out in 2002, it becomes explicitly marketed as a, a post-9-11 show, uh, focusing on the, the, the nostalgia of the 1960s. Um, they, they talk about going back to the good times, remembering uh, these sort of simpler, happier times. And what I think is fascinating about that is they, they take it as self-evident that... Um, this black-white civil rights story from the 1960s is going to be a happier story. There's a lot of very serious issues that show up in American Dreams, uh, not least of which is that the show, the first season of the show, ends with the Philadelphia riot. So it's not just a, a happy, whitewashed um, story about the 60s, but the way in which the show was initially portrayed or presented uh, was in this kind of very gauzy lens of, of nostalgia about the 60s. Um, What I think is fascinating about that in the the post-9-11 context, and this applies for hairspray as well, is the sort of larger issues I think both of these programs attempt to evade. So a lot of the contemporary issues about uh, race and racism that are outside of the black-white paradigm or even outside of the the U.S. racial paradigm, so issues about Muslims and Arab Americans, issues about uh, immigration and and border disputes. um, I don't know that the producers were explicitly trying to avoid those by looking to uh, American Dreams and Harrisburg, really. but I think certainly to think about nostalgia in a post-9-11 era, uh, it it attempts to simplify, um, simplify race in, in the U.S. to something that viewers um, are thought to understand, but I think they still don't understand fully, which is the, the black-white relations in the 1960s. Uh, if I can say a last thing about those two programs, and particularly hairspray, I think. Um, what I I love about hairspray is that my students know about it. So for my students, they were all um, by generations now, um, too young to know American Bandstand firsthand, uh, but they know hairspray. Um, so I can use hairspray as a way to um, talk to them about a show like American Bandstand and all of the sort of associated issues that go along with it, um, which I think is is fascinating.
0: I love that you ended that comment with that because I think one of the really cool things that your book does. And what I see happening in, in pop culture scholarship right now is that there's a, there's a kind of picking apart generationally of these program narratives that are perhaps more memory than history. There's, there's a way in which this generation of scholars, your generation of scholars is able to examine programs that, and, and other cultural artifacts that have been in some ways unexamined and it seems like your students have a very different relationship to those materials as well. So there's your mother, there's you, and then there's your students. Do you feel like, as part of this generation of scholars, that you you have any more access to the history than anyone else? Or did was that something that you came across as you were doing the work?
1: I think, um, I guess I always think of it as a, a challenge. And the, I think the reason I invoke my students when thinking about these issues of, of memory is that, in many ways I I want my students to to look to television and film as a starting point for history. So what I don't want to say is, Oh, don't pay attention to those things. Those are bad history. So I think that really, um, it really shortcuts a lot of really interesting debates and discussions you can have about popular culture, particularly about popular culture and race. That so many, um, so much of what we know about, um, about the history of race in America, particularly about the history of race in the post-war period is mediated in some way, right? That even the, the, the real-time history of the civil rights movement was thoroughly mediated through television, through radio, through photography. That there was uh, these issues of media have always been sort of deeply, deeply intertwined with um, with the the quote-unquote actual history of of events surrounding civil rights. So I, I want my students to look at something like hairspray and take it seriously enough to ask good questions of it, um, but also take it seriously enough to be skeptical of it to know that there are multiple levels of, of revision and memory and nostalgia that are are embedded in each of these um, each of these contemporary documents in the same way that I think you could say that there were these issues of mediation certainly and even a forms of nostalgia embedded in the early American bandstand clips that it was trying to to simplify youth culture to sell youth culture, that there's nothing um, It's hard to pin down what was what was real about it in the first instance. And I want my students to be able to sort of peel back all the complexities that go on there.
0: Great. And do you think that you personally as a scholar have access to that peeling down to to deeper layers? Um, Looking at text that you don't personally know because you didn't see hundreds and hundreds of hours of it live when you were growing up. You're learning about them as a historian. Do you feel like that matters in your ability to read them?
1: I think so. At least I like to think so. That um, that you bring a, a fresh set of eyes to something that, I mean, for everything that I already knew about American advancement, I was still willing to be skeptical about it or willing to be um, convinced otherwise about it. I didn't... Um, Although I went in thinking it was going to be the integrated program that I could hold up as the positive ideal, um, I certainly wasn't uh, wedded to that idea, and I was happy to be convinced otherwise when the, the trail of evidence led me in other directions. Uh, I think what's so important for me uh, about a, a scholar of this time period that tries to look at popular culture in its historical context is being able to bring different types of source materials to bear on the program itself. So not treating popular culture in a vacuum, being able to understand um, how a show like American Bandstand could be influenced by these neighborhood disputes over housing segregation, be be influenced by school segregation disputes. Um, and all of these things help to provide different critical lenses, I think, to examine historical television programs like American Bandstand. So I think from that perspective, I think um, scholars, and I think regardless of which generation, but I think particularly scholars of my generation who don't have a, a particular um, built-in set of memories about a show are able to, um, to try to really pull apart these, um, these thorny issues of, of memory and history and, and mediation with, uh, with early television.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. I need to know now, what's next from you? What can we look forward to? What are you working on now?
1: Um, my next project is on uh, television coverage of school busing in the 1970s. So I think I'm really interested in, I think, where the story goes next in some ways for television and race. I'm interested in how television shaped uh, people's ideas and, and opinions about busing uh, across the country. So Boston, of course, is the most famous example of um, of busing disputes in the 1970s and that footage got broadcast everywhere. But it turns out and I've done some research uh, already at the Vanderbilt television archives and the university of Georgia. Um, there are, are hundreds of hours of, uh, television coverage from both nightly news, uh, nightly national news, but also local television coverage, um, that detailed cities like Charlotte and Louisville and Dallas and Minneapolis and, and Boston to try to portray how busing was affecting different cities. Um, and I think a lot of the issues that show up in this first book project, I think we'll continue over to the next one, particularly in terms of how television frames issues of, of race and place. But I think how television foregrounds some sets of concerns while obscuring others. I think in the busing case, what they obscured most often was issues about, about housing discrimination. So why judges would have ordered uh, busing decisions in the first place. Um, but it's, um, I love working with television as a historical source, and I think this will be a lot of fun to continue with.
0: That's fantastic. I'm so glad that you're working on something else about television. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, thanks again so much for being on the show today. W- you've been listening to New Books in Popular Culture from the New Books Network. I'm Erin Lee Mock, and we've spoken to Matthew Delmont. His new book, The Nicest Kids in Town, is coming out February or the spring.
1: In February, February 2012.
0: February 2012 from University of California Press. So definitely check it out. And thanks for listening today.
1: Thanks for having me, Erin. It was great talking to you.